0: Hello, everyone. I'm John Pappas with GeoComply, and welcome to the Pappas iGaming podcast. This podcast covers a wide range of issues in the internet gaming landscape, from sports betting to poker and internet casino games to iLottery. This podcast will keep you up to speed on everything that is happening in this fast-moving industry. In this edition, we look at sports betting, and in particular, How States Can Assess the Economic Impact of Introducing Sports Betting in Their State. With more and more U.S. states considering legalized sports betting, the need to understand the real numbers associated with such an expansion has become an important topic for both legislators and regulators. This podcast is essentially the audio portion of a recent webinar that GeoComply did along with Eiler's CryCheck Gaming, entitled, What is Your Sports Betting Potential? Assessing the economic viability. The webinar was extremely popular, and in fact, it was GeoComply's best attended webinar of the year. The webinar brought together an expert panel, including Chris Grove, Managing Director at Eilers Crycheck Gaming, Dr. Khalil Philander, Assistant Professor at the Carson College of Business at the Washington State University, Mark Lipperelli, Founder of GeoCo Ventures and former Nevada State Senator, as well as a Nevada State Gaming Regulator, And finally, Jeff Ifra, who's the founder of Ifra Law and executive director and general counsel at IDEA, one of the advocacy groups looking to advance policies for the iGaming and sports betting industries. I moderated the panel and I think you'll find the content to be extremely interesting and useful. And if you're a legislator, a regulator, or an operator in the sports betting space, you will definitely find it interesting and useful. So I thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, Thank you to GeoComply for organizing this webinar. For those of you who don't know, GeoComply is the gold standard in geofencing technology for the iGaming industry. Today, GeoComply powers every major platform across 42 U.S. states covering iGaming, sports betting, iLottery, and daily fantasy sports. In order to comply with state and federal laws, you must know the location of your customers. That is why GeoComply has become an indispensable partner to operators and regulators alike. For more than a decade, I have worked on the public policy advocacy side of the internet gaming debate. Over this time, I've had the pleasure of working with both, with not only GeoComply, but each one of today's panelists. I can assure you that there is no other webinar taking place at this moment that has the hands-on industry experience that has been assembled here. In serious, serious, though, this is an all-star lineup, and we have with us today uh, some exceptional panelists. Uh, Chris Grove, who serves as managing director of sports and emerging verticals at Eiler's Crycheck Gaming. Chris has worked directly with policymakers in a dozen states on questions related to gambling and sports betting. His research and insights are regularly cited by mainstream media, public companies, and financial institutions. Also on the panel is Dr. Khalil Philander. He is an assistant professor um, in in the Carson College of Business at Washington State University. He holds an appointment as an honorary lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. His research interests are focused on socioeconomic impacts of gambling. Uh, Jeff Ifra is also on the panel. He is the founding partner of Washington, D.C. law firm Ifra Law. Jeff is considered one of the world's foremost attorneys in online gambling law. He leverages his decades of experience to advise gaming companies of all sizes, even startups, on compliance with state and federal laws. Of special note in the gaming community is Jeff's seminal role in founding the iDevelopment and Economic Association, otherwise known as IDEA, a nonprofit association seeking to grow jobs and expand the online interactive entertainment business in the US and through, through advocacy and education. Finally, on our panel is uh, Mark Liparelli. Uh, Mark has 25 years of gaming entertainment industry experience in various senior level capacities. Impressively, Mark served as a senator in the Nevada State Legislature. Uh, during 2015 and 2016, and in 2012, he completed a four-year term on the Nevada State Gaming Control Board, including his final two years as chairman of that board. Mark is the founder of GIOCO Ventures and is a strategic advisor to clients worldwide in, in gaming, entertainment, investment, and sports industries. Because of the strength of this panel, I'm certain that this web conference is over that you will leave with a greater understanding of the economic viability of sports betting. Um, as a little bit of background, uh, an economic impact assessment is commonly used by state and federal lawmakers when making important policy decisions. Um, as an increasing number of US states consider legalizing sports betting, the need to understand the real numbers, and the real numbers are what's important, associated with such an expansion has become an important topic for both legislators and regulators. Uh, Fortunately, we have great folks here that can walk us through this, and they will talk about what goes into an economic assessment and how this important research tool can aid state governments and regulatory bodies in understanding the market potential uh, of sports betting. Uh, Today, we'll discuss topics like the importance of optimal tax rates, how to properly forecast a market, how robust KYC and geolocation standards can capture the full market potential, What role does competition play in assessing a market's potential? And what are some of the ancillary industries that will be created by legal sports betting and how they can impact an economic assessment? Just a couple small housekeeping items before we start. I'd like to encourage everyone uh, to ask questions during this webinar. We wanna talk with you, not at you. And you can do this by using the GoToWebinar panel on the right side of your screen. Just type your question into the questions area and we will answer it during the webinar or at the end of the webinar. If you'd like a specific panelist to answer, please specify that in your question. And just one other item, uh, after the webinar is over, GeoComply will be sending everyone that registered a link to on-demand recording in case you want to review it again or forward it to someone who you think might be interested in this compelling panel. And with that out of the way, I'd like to ask uh, Chris Grove and Dr. Khalil Philander to lead us through a presentation and, um, and I will be engaging the other panelists to weigh in throughout the slideshow. So, Chris and uh, Dr. Flander, I leave it to you, too, to, to lead with the first slide.
1: Thanks, John. So the first topic that I think it's important to cover when a state or a district or any jurisdiction is thinking about their sports betting potential is the question of tax rate. This ends up being a threshold question on a number of levels because obviously it touches upon the amount of revenue that government can reasonably stand to realize from regulated sports betting. But it also has a direct impact on the actual potential of the market itself, which then in turn has a resonant impact on the amount of revenue that a government can realize from regulated sports betting and on the long term sustainability of that market. Obviously, we are in the early days of regulated sports betting in the United States, and a year or two from now, we'll have a far better set of analogs to really judge the direct short-term impact of tax policy in terms of a U.S. perspective. But we do have some salient observations from international markets. And as you can see on the slide, basically where we've seen the sweet spot for tax rates when it comes to regulated sports betting sit is somewhere in that 15 to 20% range of GGR or gross gaming revenue. Obviously, every jurisdiction has its unique considerations and some tax rates might work in one jurisdiction that aren't necessarily appropriate for another jurisdiction. But that's the key takeaway that we've seen from international markets. And when we talk about a sweet spot, what we're talking about is a tax rate that provides the greatest benefits to the government in terms of revenue and sustainability of the market. There are a few components of that. A key one that I know is an incredibly important issue for policymakers in the U.S. is how does my tax rate intersect with this idea of how much demand I can capture from the existing illegal market for sports betting? And that's what the chart on this slide is directly addressing, a concept known as channelization. And you can see that you really have a sharp drop-off in capture rate once your tax rate starts to move above 20%. So as you move above that threshold, what's happening and, and what researchers have seen happen in international jurisdictions is the product becomes less competitive, pricing and promotions become less competitive, and basically the regulated market can't withstand the competitive pressure of the existing illegal market. There are also some other considerations when you're talking about tax rate in terms of the appeal of a product to consumers, how much is left over for operators to reinvest in the product, how much marketing can be done, and I know that Khalil will speak about some of those things when we move into the economic impact discussion. The other two important notes when you're thinking about tax rate from the perspective of a U.S. jurisdiction First is that for most jurisdictions, the federal excise tax is going to come into play. And if you're not familiar, that's a federal tax that's basically for sports betting, equivalent to a quarter of a percent on total amount bet or handle. If if you want to translate that to a tax on revenue, rule of thumb is that you're looking at about every quarter percent of tax on handle, equaling about a 5% tax on revenue. So the upshot there is that Regulated sports betting in most states is starting with that base tax rate of about 5% that has to be paid to the federal government before the state tax rate even comes into play. The other keynote here is that license fees are, in my view, an effective extension of a tax rate, especially when the license fees start to get substantial. And I'm sure that everyone has taken note of the wide delta between states like West Virginia, who have a relatively modest license fee for sports betting, and states like Pennsylvania, who assigned a license fee of $10 million to operators who wanted to bring regulated sports betting into the market. When you see license fees start to escalate to those kinds of numbers, they then become inextricable in terms of the connection between the license fee and the tax rate. They effectively serve as an extension of the tax rate for the purposes of talking about topics like illegal market capture and consumer appeal. In a nutshell, the lesson that we've learned from international jurisdictions and the lesson that most states in the U.S. seem to be adhering to, at least by and large and and to date, is that a tax rate of somewhere between 15 to 20 percent is the most appropriate one for regulated sports betting in terms of delivering the greatest amount of value to state and district governments, uh, to consumers and creating a
0: market that's commercially viable for operators. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Chris. I actually have a couple follow-up questions on that. Um, on the licensing fee, you talked about a sweet spot for tax. Is there uh, a similar sweet spot for licensing fees and also, are there legislatures or uh, uh, jurisdictions that have considered a licensing fee as a, a, a future rebate on taxes paid by the licensee? So I think there is a
1: sweet spot, but I, I think it's a little less universal than the tax rate. And one of the questions I'm asking myself if I'm a policymaker in the US is what, what's my stakeholder landscape? who are the key license holders that I want to participate in sports betting and what sorts of cost thresholds are appropriate if I want to win full participation. So a state like Pennsylvania may be dealing with a a wildly different set of considerations on that front. Then I think there's also an issue to be considered that license fee doesn't just apply to primary operators. You also have license fee for suppliers in play And with sports betting and online gambling in general, you have non-endemic brands who are interested in competing in these markets. And I think there's a potential source of revenue for state and district governments in looking at that question of other brands who are interested in accessing the market and whether or not there's a license fee structure that balances what you're trying to do competitively with what you're trying to do from a state government perspective. I'm not aware of any states that have passed a bill that have taken the rebate approach. But it, it wouldn't surprise me if we did see some jurisdictions take that approach. I know that's one that's been floated in the past for online gambling. And it, it's certainly a way, frankly, for state governments to realize a little more revenue up front, which is, is obviously a priority in, in certain budgetary situations.
0: Thanks. And, and another on, on the tax uh, vein, Mark, you know, you, you represented and served on the Gaming Control Board for a state that is on the Far end of that spectrum, the lower end of the spectrum, six point seven five percent. You know, in your experience, what should regulators and lawmakers be evaluating uh, when they look at tax rights that are right for their state?
2: Uh, that's that's a good question. It's it's primarily the province of the legislators to to set those tax rates and the public policy as it relates to things like licensing fees and who might be included or who might be excluded you know know, one challenge with with state governments is they always look at at privileged industries like this as a way to raise funding obviously that's what they're there to do to fund the governments but by the same token there has to be some careful attention paid to setting licensing rates at a level so high that you discourage new entrants. And I, and I know Nevada has been historically, you know, open to competition. That's been a hallmark of, of our state. And anytime you start putting prices on licenses, you start down a path of potentially excluding certain players from, from participating either because the rates are too high or um, they're just not attracted to the market for, you know, capturing rate of return on their investment. Um, Nevada's rate is low and, and it served the state well. Um I think no one would dispute the fact that the rate of investment in our state is um is probably as high as anybody and we get continued investment. So there you know the operators will argue that when when there's ever a discussion about raising the, the gaming tax rate, it has a direct impact on you know their ability to make reinvestments into the state. So I think there is an important distinction, as Chris pointed out, that if there is a state that has a higher um, rate of tax on their gaming revenue, um, from my perspective, and Chris laid it out as good as anybody, they, they should look at sports from a different vantage point. Um, there is a fixed amount of, of profit and revenue available within the, the sports betting silo. And to to just unilaterally apply whatever a state's gaming rate of tax um, to sports is is not well thought through. So I think most jurisdictions should think differently about how they apply the tax rate to sports.
0: And, and speaking of kind of that thinking differently, it looks like New Jersey thought about this a little differently than some other states. Uh, New Jersey has a range of tax rates depending on the medium in which you're sports betting, whether you're doing it at a casino, uh, brick and mortar casino, whether you're doing it online or whether you're doing it at a racetrack. Uh, Jeff, uh, can you explain why New Jersey did this and is this a model other states should follow?
3: Yeah, I think one thing that um, we need to keep in mind is that the costs of customer acquisition and the costs of customer retention um, in an online environment is much, much more expensive than in a land based environment. And I think New Jersey gets that. Um, New Jersey understood that in order for the mobile side of gaming to succeed at the same pace that retail land-based gaming um, was to actually understand all the expenses that go into making a successful mobile program, and you can't ignore the high cost of acquiring customers and continuing to market to those customers to retain them. Um, It's sort of like if a customer comes into a land-based casino and has a good experience on the floor, they're there, they're captured. You can sell them food, you can sell them entertainment, when a customer comes online They may only be there for a fraction of a second to place a bet in the sports betting context or to play at a sitting go at a poker game. It may be a little longer than a second, of course. But the point is, you don't have any everything else that you have in a land based environment to throw at them. And as a result, um, as a result, it's much higher to keep them there and keep them engaged. And so I think New Jersey really understood that. And as a result, didn't look at that industry um, kind of superficially like some other states are thinking about doing. And so it's, it's really um, allowed the industry to grow. Not initially, they, they didn't really turn a profit for four years in New Jersey, at least on the gaming and poker side. But, but um, keeping those rates at a, and license fees at appropriate levels has allowed the, uh, the industry to succeed.
0: Great. Well, we could probably talk uh, this entire webinar about tax rates, but we're going to move on. Uh, Khalil, if you could give us a broad overview of, of economic impact, that would be great.
4: Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, so to just you know tee up what will be uh, a more detailed conversation about specific states, I'll just give a little bit of uh, background on economic impacts in general, um, uh, just to kind of level set the conversation on, on what we're talking about here. So economic impacts, uh, when we talk about them in this context, uh, what we're really trying to get to in terms of what might be you know economic first principles is what's the the total change of utility among all the people in our economy and and utility is this economics term of art that's a little bit elusive to try to define specifically but basically what it means is all the things that people are trying to accomplish in their regular lives as they go about acquiring goods or services or doing different acts. So this might be uh, increasing their satisfaction with their life. It might be some sort of of hedonic pleasure from consuming something, or it might be uh, buying a security alarm to reduce their anxiety and and to feel more secure. So these are all things that humans go about doing during uh, their everyday lives that we would call utility. And what we're trying to do with an economic impact study is really try to define what this might be in a numeric term. You know, other things we look at as well are, are things like employment, as that's you know something that's very important to the electorate as well, and, and is correlated to these to these other measures. Um but ultimately what we're we're trying to do is come up with a standardized methodology, that's the economic impact study, that allows us to compare between these different situations. And in these economic impact studies, there's a few different things that we look at. So Within the context of that gross domestic product, gross gross state product, there's sort of three layers of impacts. So the first layer are direct economic impacts, um, which are basically the direct consumption of that good. So in this case, uh, the way that we would measure that is, you know, the, the total amount of revenue, gaming revenue, gross gaming revenue that's generated from sports betting or from the sports book in particular, The next layer beyond that is called indirect economic impacts. And so indirect economic impacts are all the upstream suppliers that provide goods and services to those sports books in this example. So that might be anything from a local trucking company that ships supplies to the casino to an in-state office supply store that furnishes back of the house spaces. All of these sort of value added inputs are important to that final product. Uh, but aren't actually the the product of, say, the sports book itself. But as long as they happen within the economy that we're studying, so let's say within the state, um, there are meaningful economic impacts. And so one thing we also look at is what are the leakages within the economy? So if it's a very small jurisdiction that doesn't necessarily have a lot of these types of suppliers, we would call those leakages and we wouldn't necessarily count those in the overall economic impact number uh, that we're producing. Now, so in addition to the direct economic impacts, the indirect economic impacts, we also have induced economic impacts. So induced impacts are, again, this this value added or economic output or employment that are generated uh, not through the consumption of the product itself, but by the employees of those firms. So if. All of a sudden, we have some sort of policy change and several sports books open. Um, we're going to be hiring a lot of people to work at those sports books. Those people are then going to have new jobs, which they can go out and spend in their local economy. Uh, all of the wages that they've been able to accrue as a result of that policy change. So this might be someone who is now in charge of you know, auditing the sports book to make sure all their records are correct. Um, they might have more disposable income to spend at a local restaurant. And all of these things are more benefits to the economy. So when we look at, okay, what's going to be the total economic impact change? We have this proxy measure that we're looking at, be it gross state product, be it employment, be it even wages for the total economy. And we look at it through those three different layers. Direct economic impacts. so that's uh, the direct spending on the product, that's tickets we're selling at the counter or online. We have the indirect economic impact, so that's who are all these other Business to business, business firms that are benefiting because these sports books now need their own suppliers. And then we also have induced economic impacts, which is all of the people who now have jobs or better jobs who are spending their wages in the local economy.
0: Wow, okay. That's, and there's certainly a, a lot that goes into this, and it's obviously valuable information for regulators and, and lawmakers. And, you know, instead of speaking about it in the abstract, I think it'd be important for us to kind of look uh, at a, an actual economic impact assessment. Um, Jeff, your group, um, IDEA, uh, they created one in 2017 that looked at the economic impact of iGaming in New Jersey. Uh, would you mind walking us through what uh, the findings of that economic assessment was? And and um, and then after that, uh, Khalil, you guys are in the process or have completed uh, a case study for the state of Indiana. I think it'd be valuable for our attendees to hear about that as
3: well. Thank you, John, and thanks, Khalil. Um, sure. So our economic impact study is on available on our website, Idea Growth. Dot org and we hired some economists to basically gather data all of our members in New J- New Jersey in addition to Caesars who's not a member but contributed their data um, provided all their data on an anonymous basis to um, an independent research firm an economist who then looked at the data to determine um, what is the economic impact of mm-hmm. online gaming um, the first thing that everyone is always interested in the casino industry is does online gaming impact revenues? Or cannibalize revenues of the land-based partners, and you know the answer to that, John, was a resounding no. It does not. In fact, um, the conclusions in the report um, were that the entire market ends up benefiting and growing um, when you bring gaming online. Um, in addition, we also saw that um, during the the period that was studied, in addition to indirectly generating almost a billion dollars, it also created um, 3,300. Uh, over 3,300 jobs and that and all these numbers are growing through 2017 and 18 um, In addition you to to those jobs and new wages and employees you also have new tax revenue Which is super important at the state level for state and local governments and that included um, 83.5 million in high taxes, so you know all in all um, No cannibalization was confirmed increased jobs was confirmed And a nice size amount of new tax revenue, both from wages, employment and gaming taxes, was collected. Um, All um, super critical. But in addition to that, the report also looked at issues relating to potential fraud in the market. Um, Was there an uptick in problem gaming and addictive um, behavior? Um, And and it also found that um, there was no notable increase, um, despite the increase in the market size and the number of mobile operators, um, and the number of people participating in the market, there was no uptick in problem gaming, addictive gaming. Um, responsible gaming programs were at their all-time high. There was also no evidence of any fraud or underage gaming. And you know, lastly, an issue that's most important to legislators, there was no evidence that the, that the ring fencing, that the the, the excellent services that Gio comply provides to the state of New Jersey, were violated in any way. And that was a critical thing um, that the Division of Gaming Enforcement was. also super interested in because no one wants those borders to be violated and invite any type of federal scrutiny. So all in all, it was a big hit. And and as I said, John, the executive summary and the report itself is on our website.
0: Thanks, Jeff. And I I think it's important what what you talked about there. One of the overlooked parts of, of assessing a market is ensuring that operators and regulators have optimized their compliance tools like like geolocation and like age and identity verification to capture the amount of customers. And uh, in the case of geolocation, as you suggested, uh, you know, New Jersey has population centers right near uh, the borders. Uh, And so it's essential to have a a tool that can precisely pinpoint and verify where New Jersey gamblers are. Uh, If we could look at – there's another slide, I think, that we squeezed in here that, that demonstrates this point. Um, geo comply based on their data that nearly 45% of wagers are coming from within two miles of the border uh, within from Pennsylvania and New Jersey and and 80% of the wagers are coming within 10 10% uh, I'm sorry uh, within 10 miles so if you uh, if you don't use sophisticated technology you could potentially lose a huge amount of market share here Um, so for anyone who wants to answer this, so what, what's the economic impact of using best of breed technologies and allowing, you know, experienced operators who know how to use these technologies to serve the market?
3: Well, John, it's Jeff. I'm happy to answer that um, first, um, but I think everyone has a viewpoint on that. Obviously, this is a pretty compelling slide and um, a lot of states in the northeast are in this very position and gaming right now is moving in the northeast Um the future states that are going to come online, I think, are all going to be in the Northeast, maybe leaning a little towards the Midwest, but every state that I've seen coming online has this concern. You don't want to invite federal scrutiny, but at the same time, you don't want to leave um, a nice-sized population hanging that's in your border area. D.C. is struggling with this issue right now, and so these types of statistics and this type of technology, I mean, you have to go with, you know, best-in-class Um for your geolocation provider. There can't be any mistakes, um, as well as you make sure that you capture, um, just like this shows, um, and that you're capturing and not leaving anyone who's in New Jersey behind. So all that's all an excellent point, John, and, and definitely something that everyone should be um, concerned about.
0: Yeah, and certainly not just geolocation technology, but as I mentioned, age and verification, these kind of compliance tools are essential to have Good technology on hand, so that you capture uh, the maximum amount of audience uh, before we move on to Indiana Jeff I, I did have a, a a quick question about New Jersey it, you know it wasn't always smooth sailing there as you know as we both know in the infancy uh, there was a lot of issues with payment processing it really hampered growth um, that's been resolved for the most part. What did regulators and industry do to resolve that, and what can be done in future markets
3: so um you know, John, what um, what you really need is to have a regulator who's a partner and understands these initial issues. And I think the industry is very lucky to have launched in New Jersey, because every time there was some sort of issue, um, the regulator really anticipated that and partnered with the industry. So, for example, when payment processing was an issue, the regulator went down to Washington, met with the American Bankers Association, tried to identify um, headquarters like TD Bank in New Jersey who could work with. Um, work with the industry, in addition, um, try to alleviate problems that WorldPay Invantive, and Paysafe were having processing for the industry, Um, in in, in addition to um, introducing new payment providers like um, Sightline and others and allow them to to come up to to market speed um, and try and avoid customers from having a disappointing experience. And that can occur when um, a credit card doesn't go through. Or when you know a charge is somehow declined, um, that level of frustration. You know, imagine spending all that money to acquire a customer to your site and then having them turn away and get turned around because a bank isn't accepting the transaction. Uh, I don't think the industry could have done that alone. Obviously, they invested a lot of time and money in finding the right payment processors and ensuring that the experience was a good one. But I think it's really critical that the regulator not be naive um, going into this industry, and that the industry partner with the regulator, and that. The regulator also contribute, like, like you know, like they did in New Jersey, to help discuss these issues with the financial community and the banking community, so that, um, again, so that customers don't leave in frustration, um, you know, having had their, um, um, you know, their charges uh, declined.
0: Yeah, I would certainly imagine that would impact uh, an economic assessment. If uh, you have a, you've built a, a wonderful system, yet no one can deposit any money, Uh, that would certainly uh have raised some eyebrows for uh for lawmakers who are expecting to raise a lot of revenue from this uh from this endeavor. Um uh Khalil why, why don't we uh get on and, and talk about uh the economic impact case study that you guys put together uh for Indiana.
4: Yeah gladly um so recently Alex and Patrick, uh completed a, an economic impact study for Indiana. Um, looking at this uh, particular case study around uh, sports betting legalization and um you know so obviously you know like i I spoke about kind of more theoretically there's there's a lot of issues that go into every case um and so certainly if if any you know jurisdiction is is interested in okay, what does this mean for us um you know it does take that specific modeling for the particular state even if you look at. You know, kind of the, the market numbers that are that are floating around on what's the potential for uh, sports betting in a given state. A lot of you know people have produced these types of numbers. But if you really want to understand what's going to be the actual impact, it does take a focus study to look at what's the particular policy framework that's going to lead to these impacts. And so I think it's helpful to look at this Indiana case. Um, not only for the, the general numbers, but also for some uh, particular nuances that might help reveal some of the things that that are important to consider as as we go by. Um, and so in this particular case, um, what we first examined was a, a a tax that was a 9.25% on GGR, um, which, you know, if you add that together with the, the federal excise tax is kind of, Approaching that that range that Chris talked about at the start of this presentation of this is kind of a safe place for us to go without necessarily losing a large chunk of the market to um, underground operators. Um, And when we did that, when we look at those numbers and and in this case, we're looking at at a particular situation where there is both uh, mobile and retail betting. um, In the case of only retail, it's about half the impacts, just as a side note. But when we did that, we estimated over the sort of the first five years, which is a ramp up period. So we don't expect the economy to be at at full impact in in the first couple of years. But within the first five years, we projected about 88 million in gaming related taxes. Um, But in addition to that, we actually uh, forecasted 59 million in non-gaming taxes for the state. So a lot of times these conversations become heavily focused on what's the GGR tax rate, what's the GGR tax revenue. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's almost as important to look at, you know, what are the uh, secondary impacts of things like payroll taxes, income taxes, um, you know, uh, excise taxes on other spending that are all important and germane and, and can be substantial in the case of these economic impact models. So if we were to you know, consider another situation where um, perhaps instead of having a tax rate around 10%, we have a tax rate around 20%, 25% or even higher. Um, We might not see the market reach near the same potential. And if the market doesn't reach near the same potential, we don't see the same investment. If we don't see the same investment, we don't see the same employment. And we don't see those types of uh, taxes that are heavily associated with employment like income and payroll taxes. So not only do we not necessarily get the the type of GGR revenue we might want, but we also miss out on all these um, secondary benefits. Um, When we kind of broke the numbers down and we we look more closely at how many jobs that we're gonna get out of this industry, um, it's roughly equal to to one job for every $350,000 in revenue. That's probably a number that travels okay to other jurisdictions who are looking at it. Obviously there'll be some nuance there, but um, certainly that's kind of in the ballpark of what we'd be looking at. And in this case, we found two jobs for every one direct job. Um, And that's a number that, again, is going to differ state by state. So in a state that's larger, that can source more things internally, um, we'll see higher impacts. Probably the one exception to this small state versus large state example would be Nevada, where a lot of the suppliers already exist within the state. Um, In that case, they'll have uh, large indirect impacts. But not necessarily reflected because of having a large economy. Um, If we go over to the next slide, um, it'll be, I'll highlight a couple of other issues that are important for thinking about economic impacts that kind of go beyond what the the standard model of economic impacts that we've been discussing are are typically formulated uh, by, uh, but are nevertheless important to consider uh, by policymakers by by industry, by other stakeholders. So one um, is that professional sports stakeholders uh, are going to get a lot of benefits from uh, sports betting. So, you know, uh, one of the things that we talk about in economics and uh, when we're particularly talking about um, industries and their effects on one another is this idea of an externality. So an externality is an effect that happens to a third party uh, because of a transaction between two, other parties and because this third party doesn't necessarily uh, get to decide on that particular transaction um, we call it an externality because they don't necessarily have direct control over what happens so the <laughs> negative externality that people talk about is issues of integrity and whether or not those might be related to uh, the expansion of, of regulated sports betting um, I'm skeptical that it would um, in this sense of expanding regulated sports betting but uh, in addition to negative externalities, one of the things that um, deserves heavy consideration are the positive externalities that might occur with the expansion of sports betting. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of correlational evidence. There's not the, the causational evidence that we might be looking for, but I think uh, intuition says that there, there definitely should be these impacts where uh, enhanced betting or sort of increased betting is going to lead to increased engagement. Um, In different types of sports so you know the idea being that if you have more money riding on a game you're more likely to watch that game and you're more likely to watch it to its finality even if it's not a very competitive game between the two teams Um, and this it could be you know an incredibly large number but it's not necessarily something that's captured in these basic economic impact studies Uh, the other uh, externality that um, we will expect to see um, in many states, particularly states that are located uh, on borders or states that are uh, designed to capture um, more visitors, uh, that might be something like a destination resort as opposed to a locals only property, uh, is increased visitation in terms of tourists. And where this becomes quite beneficial is if we are driving incremental uh, traffic to the state associated with sports betting, we're also going to see spill-off economic impacts that might be these visitors uh, spending an extra night in a hotel, they might be eating a few extra meals, even outside of the gaming property. Um, And so all of these different uh, impacts are meaningful and and can be quite large, but aren't necessarily captured directly in in what would be kind of that basic economic impact methodology. John? John? Great.
0: Um, well, thank you on that. Um, you know, so how was this information received by the Indiana legislature? Was it? Have you guys gotten any feedback from them?
4: Sorry, I'll leave that uh, question for Chris, who I think is is probably the the best person to to pick up that response.
1: Well, look, John. I think any state, any jurisdiction is interested not just in the question of tax revenue, but how, as Khalil mentioned, you're going to see resonant impacts flow through the economy as well. I think that policymakers, incorrectly so, are treating these sorts of studies cautiously because this is, in some ways, uncharted terrain when you're talking about these resonant impacts, especially. And even with regulated sports betting outside of Nevada, you're talking about a product that we're still really in the early days of learning how it's going to work in the U.S. So I think these numbers are encouraging for policymakers, but I think that they are rightly so waiting to see some direct experience and and waiting to see some direct impacts before really going all in on the idea that sports betting can drive this kind of, of activity directly and indirectly.
0: Okay, great. And 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 Mark, you know, we're we're looking at these resonant impacts, and and you know, with so many other things competing for Americans' discretionary income, uh, what can sports betting operators do to attract customers? And I think equally important, as we look at this from a responsible gaming standpoint, what can how do regulators and operators work together to ensure that they're marketing in a way that that maintains responsible gaming standards?
2: Yeah, those are those are good questions. I, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that the demand for sports betting is robust and already present, you know, around the states. And so it it makes a, a ton of sense to me. And I think most people that we've probably reached that point where it's time to to bring it out of the shadows and, and regulate it properly. The striking the balance is always the challenge for the legislator. Um, if you look back at gaming legalization back into the late 80s, early 90s, there were always compromises made. Um, Riverboats had to float when they first opened. There were loss limits that were imposed in states like Missouri that dealt with the issues associated with concerns over um, irregular betting and, and people that might have the, the risk of addiction. I, I think the industry, to its credit, has, has taken that head-on and recognizes that, you know, an appropriate um, corporate responsibility is to, to have programs in place that identify um, the risks associated with with people who have potentially an addiction problem, um, and that's partly where the regulators can play a part. Um, and there, you have to strike that balance of what is the right level of regulation, such that you know, the legalization of sports betting can remain competitive with what people are used to today with their bookies. Um, If you overdo it, and my concern would be that that is partly what starts to occur is that legislators out of concern of the integrity of sports start to lay down, which is always the risk with legislators, um, lay down absolutes with respect to whether they will support or not support um, legalization. And that can be um, burdensome on the industry and actually create the the opposite effect of of what we're all hoping will will take place. So, to the extent that you know there's policymakers on this call or people that are advising, you know I think it serves the industry well if there can be a degree of consistency from state to state. There will always be differences. Um, it's impossible to to make every state's um, statutes and regs look exactly the same. But to the extent that they depart um, dramatically, whether it's um, things like you know mobile wagering or bet restrictions or registration requirements, every one of those introduces a, a new software version and as it's been in the industry for decades, um, slot technology and system kit technology could be a whole lot more reliable if there were greater consistencies from market to market. It's when, those software um, frameworks have to be changed, you know, multiple, multiple times with lots of revisions where you introduce the risk of vulnerability. And I know people were talking earlier about, you know, should we be concerned about people getting onto these sites and impacting, you know, what's happening with software. Every time you make software more complex, you, you know, you introduce the possibility of risk. So you know, striking the right balance of regulation and making sure that the state is acting responsibility and demanding that operators act responsibly um, is is likely a whole lot more probable with, you know, an online system. It's more probable if you have betting accounts because you know who's doing what and it's more easily tracked um, versus the, the marketplace, which, you know, thrives today, which has no tax, no regulation, no responsibility. Um, so, I guess those are my my general observations about that question.
0: Right. And there's certainly two sides of the coin to responsible gaming in terms of, you know, ensuring that you have technologies in place that uh, keep people out who are not supposed to be gambling, but also technologies in place that 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 are robust enough to capture and identify those who are eligible and don't and don't turn them away. Um, we have a question from uh, our attendees that I, I want to throw out here before we move on to the next panel. And uh, this is for uh, Khalil and Chris. Uh, and it says, how does the analysis change when attempting to project the economic potential of a tribal gaming state, especially a state like Washington state that has a smaller commercial gambling and larger tribal, tribal gambling gaming operations? Uh, what additional factors, if any, should be looked at?
4: yeah it's a that's a great question um and certainly one that hits close to home for me being a uh, professor in washington state um, th- there's there's a lot of uh you know layers to that question um and i i'll I'll, tr- I'll try to focus um, more on the economic issues rather than um kind of the the political economy um, and um, you know other things like um Uh, tribal sovereignty um, and and those issues and how those create complexity. Um, But certainly in a a state that has, you know, some small operators and some larger operators, um, you know, a lot of the questions come down to um, the the idea of of competition um, as well as um, market size and, and how that relates to the, to the overall policy and economic model that supports the things. So, you know, if we, if we imagine, um, you know, a policy situation where um, we have both retail and mobile or online betting um, and anybody who has um, an operation in the state is eligible to offer online betting. Then, you know, all those organizations, you know, subject to whatever resource constraints they might have internally are all on roughly equal competitive footing when it comes to um, competing for those uh online customers. I mean, there might be some cross-sell benefits to being a larger uh, property, uh, but ultimately they're going to be competing in the same space with potentially similar products. Um, And so in that case, you know, these smaller operators might punch a bit above their weight uh, when it comes to, um, you know, typical comparisons that we might make between these properties. You know, if we were looking just at a a retail model, um, then we'd have to start thinking about, okay, well, what, uh, type of product would really, uh, attract people into these properties. Um, and it might be the case that, you know, sports betting is considered more of a commodity, um, than, uh, something like an integrated resort experience. And so these larger properties that are located in Indian country that, um, you know, might be, you know, a couple hours drive away from a major uh, population center in some cases, not all cases, certainly, um, But they might be at a little bit of a disadvantage um, since people might go to those destinations, you know, on on multi-day trips um, and are intended to spend, you know, several hours there if they do just go for a single day trip um, for, you know, other amenities. Whereas somebody who might just want to bet a Thursday night football game um, perhaps just wants to find a a local property that's somewhere between work and home uh, on their commute. Um, So so these are the types of things that we might consider when it when it comes to um, how do we estimate the overall economic impact and the market size. Um, But again, there's a lot of other uh, layers that go with the political economy of these types of states. um, that certainly uh, can have a big impact on on what those final numbers look like.
0: Thanks. And I just want to remind uh, all the attendees that if there are other things that you want to dig deeper with any of these panelists, uh, their emails are going to be available at the end of the slideshow. And and I encourage you to reach out directly so that you can uh, communicate with them and and get uh, all the information that that you might be looking for. Um, Chris, I know there's a a couple of slides that you want to talk about on the very important question of addressing the illegal market. Um, Can you jump into those for us? Sure. So
1: a couple of basic takeaways here. The first, and this comes, I think, is no surprise to anyone either on this call or listening to this call, and that's that there is a substantial and entrenched illegal market for sports betting in the United States. You're going to get varying estimates of the size of this market. We put it at about $60 billion wagered annually. I've seen other estimates that put it four or five times higher than that. But the one thing that all estimates have in common is that the, the market is substantial. The second key takeaway, though, is in proprietary survey work that we've done, there is a propensity among people who are currently betting illegally to move to the regulated market if, and this is an important caveat, if the product is competitive and the pricing is competitive. So there's going to be some amount of demand that's always going to reside in the illegal market, but broadly speaking, consumers who are currently in that market are signaling a willingness to come over to the regulated market. And the third takeaway from this first slide here, and I believe this presentation will also be made available to to anyone who's watching the webinar now, but the the third takeaway is that there are lessons from international jurisdictions and, and emerging lessons from U.S. jurisdictions about how to shape policy in a way that results in the largest capture of the black market, moving the illegal market over to the regulated market, and without going through them point by point, I think the the important note here is that it's not just about tax policy. That's certainly an important lever to pull when you're thinking about moving demand over from the illegal market to the regulated market, but it's not the only lever that you can pull. And if we move to the next slide, you'll get a sense, and I'm not going to go into too much depth here, but you'll get a sense of the other available levers that they're the other available levers that exist to move demand over from the illegal market to the regulated market. And a lot of them really have to do with a point that Mark already touched upon. They have to do with a regulatory structure and, and a legislative structure first that provides enough flexibility to allow the regulated market to adapt as it needs to adapt in order to stay competitive with the illegal market. So, What I take away from these two slides is a simple point. There's an entrenched market that's appealing to a number of consumers. Those consumers are willing to move over into the regulated market, and a lot of their decision about whether or not to make that move really does come down to those initial decisions that legislators make and then subsequent decisions that regulators make that give shape and contour to the regulated market
0: great that's, that's that's really informative, and it's obviously coloring a lot of this and I, I have not watched a, um, a hearing yet on sports betting where uh, questions and concerns raised about how do we channel uh, players to this new regulated marketplace, how is that going to work and, and 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 are there examples of it being successful and uh, obviously New Jersey is an example when it comes to iGaming gaming of how that's been successful. Jeff, can you just touch real quickly on what New Jersey did uh, with uh, how they dealt with the illegal internet poker and internet gaming market?
3: Yeah, of course, and again, John, it really does come down to um, how much of a partner is your regulator in New Jersey. Again, very unusual um, gaming enforcement division that worked with the industry and listened to the industry's concerns. Look, if you're gonna accept, if you're gonna be like a Pennsylvania and take a huge licensing fee um, from you know from an operator, um, you, you got to hope as an operator that you know the enforcement division is going to turn around and help you out and keep out this offshore competition that Chris is talking about. Um, but New Jersey did that without having um, that huge licensing fee because they want the program to be a success. For all the reasons that Chris said, it's very difficult to convert offshore customers into uh, customers in a regulated environment. But there is a belief system that consumers in the U.S. would rather play in a regulated system with all things being equal. Um, and so the... What the regulator did, working with the industry, was um, identify who were the advertisers for the offshore industry. They um, identified online who was promoting those offshore books, and they basically, um, you know, wrote them all cease and desist letters, essentially, um, also threatening legal action and enforcement action. They also they also reached out to a lot of the operators and the operators advertisers in the New Jersey market and said, hey, um, you know, we've identified that one of your downstream partners or vendors. Is promoting an offshore book that all needs to stop. Um, and so, identifying, dedicating resources within your in, in, within your enforcement division, and then using those resources to learn about the illegal offshore market, the advertisers and the affiliates that participate in it, and literally um, threatening them with cease and desist letters and telling them to stop. Um, that's how you stop the promotion. And I'll tell you, New Jersey was one of the only states in the country that have been able to literally get offshore providers like Bovada and others to block New Jersey from even receiving an action. That's, that's a pretty big, significant concession. So um, that's what they've been doing, John, and they've been doing it very well. Great. Thank you.
0: Um, well, we have a, a final slide here that has um, some other considerations, other key issues that folks should consider. And instead of going through the slide and, and cause we're running up on some time, I wanted to ask a couple questions. Um, something that's very relevant right now um because as many of the attendees are probably aware the uh washington dc city council is currently discussing literally currently right this second is discussing how to legalize and authorize sports betting in that jurisdiction and uh one approach would be to have all mobile gaming run through the dc lottery with some limited exceptions um this is uh an approach that has met some resistance. But uh, Chris, when you're looking at this, when you're looking at a monopolistic approach versus an open competition, uh, does that, uh, well, how does that equation impact uh, market size and potential? Broadly speaking,
1: my sense is that a monopolistic approach results in a significantly smaller market than a market that promotes an open and competitive approach. And there are a few things that are in play there, Obviously, transfer from the illegal market is one of the factors. The kind of quality of product that's going to be delivered to consumers in a monopolistic market, I would argue, is generally going to be lower than in an open and competitive market. I think you'll also see less value for consumers in terms of pricing and promotions. And then, of course, it's important to note that these sports betting markets don't exist in a vacuum. D.C.'s sports betting market exists or eventually will exist within the context of regulated sports betting markets on the district's borders. And so remaining competitive with those products is important, especially if you have a significant amount of drive-in traffic or tourist traffic or commuter traffic or, or even simply surrounding larger metro area traffic, all of which Washington, D.C. does. Each market is going to be unique, but if, if you ask me in an all things being equal situation, I'd say that as a policymaker, I'm always going to prefer the open competitive market because I think it delivers me the greatest amount of revenue, uh, the best product for the consumer, the best pricing for the consumer, and also creates an environment where commercial operators can thrive and have a, a sustainable business. And, and all of those things long term should deliver the, the greatest amount of good to the greatest amount of stakeholders.
0: Uh, it's a great point. And I think the pricing points really interesting as well, because um, we did have an attendee ask a question about, you know, with it becoming so commonplace in mainstream sports betting, uh, people are becoming more savvy about pricing and things like that. So if you're in a monopolistic situation where you only have one alternative, either that alternative or the illegal market, if the pricing is going to be better at the illegal market, then your single regulated alternative may not uh may not attract the customers that you need. Uh, we're really running up on time, but there's one last question I want to ask of, of, of Mark, because I think this is kind of a big picture question um, and something that, you know, we struggle with as policymakers is that what should lawmakers consider when they're shaping legislation? How much should be explicitly defined in legislation itself versus what should be left to the regulators to decide? Mark, can you opine on that?
2: Yeah, that that's always the push pull when it comes to, to framing law. But but generally speaking, I have found that when legislators set set out the the big picture, um, set down the, the the absolutes. And in sports betting, there are there are several absolutes. Um, you know, bankroll requirements, auditing, record keeping, um, mobile versus not mobile. Um, the ability for people to have redress, you know, kind of a, a dispute resolution function. You know, those are all big picture pieces of, of what legislation might contain. The, the challenge with having legislators getting down into the nitty gritty um, is it, it creates lock-in. And as everyone knows, once legislation's in place, it can be, a, a, you know, a bugger to change. So having been a regulator and having been a legislator and seen both sides of that, I think they're, you know, to the extent that they have a a robust regulatory framework, it's good to give the regulators the tools and the commissions the tools to frame specific regulations that are are more flexible. You know, they can can adapt to to the the marketplace. And I was gonna add to the last point, um, one other important consideration vis-a-vis lotteries being a part of this process is we are going to see in the next three to four years a significant amount of, of changes in technology. And as everyone who participates in the gaming industry knows, when those kinds of changes come, if you're locked into a long-term you know lottery contract, um, I, I completely agree with Chris's point that I think the marketplace will demand quicker turn on new kinds of technologies. And there will be people who come to the industry with with ideas, whether it's, you know, mobile devices, um, the possibility of interactive TV and, and all those kinds of options with respect to sports, connectivity to stadiums, those those kind of things. And I think you're going to want um, to leave regulators with a requisite amount of flexibility. Jeff pointed out how well New Jersey's done by by being a tough regulator, but at the same time understanding that the industry won't succeed and patrons won't make their way to the market if, if the um, rules are too rigid and the regulator proves inflexible. So, I, um, you know, I completely agree with my colleagues on the call that that um, you got to strike the right balance, but doing that at the legislative level is probably not, not the right place to do it.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Mark. And, and I also want to thank just everybody um, who participated in the panel and uh, obviously, thank our, uh, everyone who attended. Uh, we'd love to be able to, to answer a few more of your questions that were sent in, but because of time, we we got we to gotta close this up. So I encourage you to follow up directly with uh, any of the folks that you want to reach out to. Their emails are provided on the screen here. Um, and um, since we've come to an end, uh, you know, I want to uh, remind you that GeoComply is going to be sending Uh, everyone that registered a link for the on-demand recording, and hopefully you will be able to review it again to catch something you may have missed or forward it to someone that you think would be interested in this. And thank you all again, and and I appreciate everybody's time uh, to participate in the panel and for listening to the panel. And thank you very much, GeoComply, for putting it together.